Disclosure, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. Hey everyone, Ben Keedy here with the Wealth Crypto Podcast again, and this time I have Anthony Morrow on. He is the CEO of Provenance Blockchain Foundation, which is responsible for the Provenance Blockchain. Uh, Provenance is a layer one protocol built specifically for financial services, and you'll hear this uh, several times throughout the podcast with Anthony, but the idea here is that Banks, asset managers, fintechs, financial institutions of all sorts can essentially deploy assets cheaper, faster, and safer than ever before. So I will leave it there. And without much further ado, we will get into the conversation with Anthony. Thanks. And we're live. Anthony, what's up? Hey, good to see you, Ben. Yeah, yeah, you too. Thanks for taking the time to do this today. So um, maybe just start with a brief overview of who you are, your background, and what you're up to today, and then we can just go from there. Sure. Thank you for that. So happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, my name is Anthony Morrow. I am CEO of the Provenance Blockchain Foundation, uh, a role I've been in. I've been with the foundation for about a year and a half, and I'll talk about that in a second. But you know how I got here, I am uh, very traditionally a financial services uh, nerd. I started my career at BNY Mellon a long, long time ago, more than, oh my goodness, 25 years ago. And I spent two decades there uh, running various security servicing businesses in the U.S. and London, uh, you know, primarily a, a product called American Depository Receipts and Global Depository Receipts, which essentially are you know, non-U.S. companies trading on the New York Stock Exchange, for instance, as an ADR. Um, so I spent, and as I said, two decades there running around the world establishing uh, new ADR programs for companies in 70-something countries. When I started, it was sort of this backwater security servicing business. And when I left, it was a, a, a trillion-dollar asset class with a you know, billion dollars in revenue across four depository banks. So really, really interesting ride. Um, I left there in 2019 to uh, become president and principal executive officer of a real estate investment trust. We were trying, it was a startup. We are trying to put single property uh, real estate investment trusts on the New York Stock Exchange, and we got pretty far down that road. And then the interest rate environment uh, turned upside down, and things changed a bit. Um, and then uh, found my way uh, to the Providence uh, Project by uh, Mike Cagney at Figure and, and some other uh, people in the ecosystem, and knew that it was the future of financial services and uh, easily a place I wanted to spend the rest of uh, my career. Well, there you go. That's a that's a hell of a run. Particularly, uh, I'd be curious to kind of dig into the ADR business way back when too, uh, yeah. just from a curiosity standpoint. But um, I mean, the reason I spent twenty two years there it was just absolutely fascinating. Like anytime you buy a non US equity on the New York Stock Exchange right now, it's a, it's an ADR, and um, you know, it is. I have to say, the most intermediated uh, financial service out there. You've got a bunch of intermediation on the foreign side. So if you're buying a Chinese equity or a French equity, uh, you know, you've got that whole infrastructure. Then you have cross-border infrastructure, and then you have U.S. infrastructure. So the amount of people taking a fee out of an ADR transaction is remarkable. 
Um, <laughs> and these are the kind of things that financial services blockchain can 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 fix uh, no time soon, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, you know, over over the course of you know several years, um, you should I should be able to yeah theoretically bilaterally trade and settle with a customer in France who's selling you know uh, French telecom stock to me. You know if I want to buy a hundred shares of that for the you know euro equivalent of a hundred dollars. There's no reason we shouldn't be able to buy set, bilaterally settle and clear that transaction using uh, financial services blockchain rails. Um, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. Come. <laughs> no, no time soon though. There, there's a lot to pick at there. Um, <laughs> I uh, I was just curious, real quick. So, like, you were a part of this ADR business in its infancy, and at the time, I would assume you would call that a financial innovation, right? Um, what uh, do you see any sort of parallels between just sort of the life cycle of, you know, your experience in the ADRs and what we're seeing now in sort of financial services crypto? Yeah, I, I think my my advice to when I speak to you know, younger, younger people in financial services or, or starting a career is you, you always want the rising tide of an industry that is in, this, in its ascendancy. And it was easy in the early 90s to know that there was going to be an increasing amount of investment in cross-border equities. Um, you know, the, you know, the U.S.-centric view of the world is great, uh, but something like 60% of the market cap is outside of the U.S. And back then, almost 100% of investors, a U.S. investors' portfolio was in U.S. equities. So you knew that that had a change. Um, and, you know, it did. We, we lived through the rise of the BRICS, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, emerging markets. Um, you know, all the developed markets, everything that's going on, uh, you know, just around the world has an impact on, on non-U.S. equities. And as an asset class, it continued to grow and it still is growing, not not, not nearly as fast as it did in the early days. Uh, so it, it is no longer an ascendant industry. It is a mature industry. So not, you know, again, don't make your career in mature industries if you can make your career in an ascendant industry. So, um, yeah, that's when I thought uh, my job there was done. <laughs> I, I traveled to 65 countries around the world, and, and it was you know, among the most fascinating experiences you could ever have. And BNY Mellon is a, just a wonderful corporation with great leaders, a, a wonderful view of what happens in the world. And, yeah, from the first day, I learned about security servicing, and importantly, I learned about risk. And those uh, messages, those learnings continue into my blockchain journey today. Uh, risk is prevalent in everything that we do, and uh, not a lot of you know, crypto and blockchain projects think about it in the way that it should be thought about. And we at Providence think about it every day, and it's our one of our guiding principles uh, to be a good control location, which is another security servicing term. And to be, you know, you'll hear me say, in order to be disruptive in blockchain, you need to be cheaper, faster, and safer all at the same time. Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of projects that are cheaper and faster, but they forget about the safer part. And institutionally, you'll never scale unless you're all three things at the same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, uh, I had on uh, Chief Legal from SIBO Digital earlier this year. I don't know if you saw that. Catherine Kirkpatrick, maybe, if you know her. Um, okay, yeah. But uh, she she essentially said something similar, particularly around institutions, and in that you know, at least in the life cycle of crypto, the infrastructure wasn't at the quality that it needed to be for institutions to really kind of jump in. Um, so that safety aspect, I think, has been something that's at least to the people I talk to, 
that that has been like forefront in terms of the institutional adoption of crypto, which hopefully we'll see in this next uh, uh, cycle of the market. But um, yeah, no, that that point definitely resonates with me for sure. So, so integrated into the chain is a group called Digital Asset Registry Technologies, and yeah, you know, it sounds mind-numbingly boring. But if you're an institutional investor and you want to buy a, for instance, loan that was originated on chain, you're going to need to file under UCC guidelines the you know ownership of that loan because should that loan package fall into bankruptcy or other um, you know, uncertainty, you want to have asset perfection, claim on that asset. And you know, as you've seen in crypto over and over again, and these bankruptcies can last, you know, years and you don't have access to your assets. Whereas if you had filed, for instance, with digital asset registry technologies, your perfected ownership of your asset, hey, you don't have to go through bankruptcy court because you own the asset. Yeah. And these are the things that institutions think about because they have generally three lines of risk, three circles of risk um, within each each uh, institution. And you know, when you have a proper risk construct. You know, perfection of assets, perfection of ownership is absolutely something that you must comply with in order to transact. And there's not a lot of projects in you know, blockchain crypto land that are thinking about asset perfection. And as we've scaled, so Providence is the largest, we think, there's not a lot of st- great statistics on this, but we think it's the largest uh, blockchain, public, public blockchain in the world by real world assets on chain. And oh, you know, figure technologies and 10 of the largest mortgage and home equity line of credit originators have done now something like $15 billion of asset origination on provenance. Right now we have uh, $10 billion of that locked. Um, and Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and BNY Mellon, my old firm, are all acting in servicing capacities for this, uh, either as an underwriter of asset-backed securities, which have um, blockchain native um, assets underlying them. Uh, the first ever rated securitizations, um, you know, lots of interesting things. It's moving fairly quickly. Um, I like to say that the only asset class that has been disrupted by blockchain so far is uh, home lending, home equity lines of credit in particular. So 5 to 6% of that market has been done digitally native on provenance, uh, which is a massive statistic if you think about it, any asset class, any real institutional asset class. Whereas if you look at you know, money market funds or B funds or any of the other assets that are also being you know, put onto blockchain, uh, the statistics would be you know, less than one-tenth of 1%. So if you think of that in the construct of 6% of HELOCs, you know, HELOCs have been disrupted by blockchain. And if you're a HELOC issuer and you're not using blockchain, you, you know, you really should be, or else you're you're in a little bit of trouble. Well, so let's uh, let's rewind really quick and just give a quick overview of prominence or provenance, excuse me, and then we can. I, I would like to jump into this HELOC uh, yeah. use case and pick that apart a little bit. So maybe just what yeah. is provenance? Why is it here? Why financial yeah. services specifically? Why not you know build on Ethereum or yeah. Solana or some other thing? Um, sure. So that'd be helpful. So Providence is a Cosmos-based sovereign layer one network uh, built specifically for financial services. And because it's built specifically for financial services, it ticks a lot of the safer boxes that I talked about. And I'll give you an example. So every other blockchain, a major blockchain, uh, starts with a base protocol. And whether you're Ethereum or, or Solana or some of the other ones you mentioned, 
that base protocol uses smart contracts to get to a use case. So in Ethereum land, you have ERC-20 or ERC-3643, which are some of the many standards used for financial services. And in order to get to a useful state for financial services, meaning you can use smart contracts for things like you know, multi-signature accounts, like whitelisting accounts, like blocking accounts, you know, all the things that you would need for traditional financial services, each one of those processes is a smart contract process. Cap table is a smart contract. Exchange is a smart contract. Gotcha. Okay. You probably have to put, you know, depends on the use case, 20, 30, 40 different smart contract functions on an Ethereum or on a Solana to get to a financial services use case. Um, same if you want to put a game or a metaverse, you have to put 20 or 30 smart contracts on top of that same base protocol to get to that use case. And that's fine. But financial services is different than gaming or, or metaverse in that, you know, the blockchain is going to be a good control location for your assets you really want to de-risk that as much as possible. So Providence has a construct in our protocol called markers, which essentially you know, eliminate the need for those 20 or 30 or 40 smart contracts because it's all built into the protocol. So you have a cap table function in the protocol. You've got all the account attestation functions in the protocol, which means you don't have to use smart contracts for it. And each yeah. smart contract we think is it's an attack vector. Each smart contract is a third-party expense. Each smart contract will need to change when other things change because they're interdependent on each other. And it's risk. You know, even the smart contracts that get put on Providence, they're a risk. But so, you know, in general, you want fewer as opposed to more. So if you can sure. have 30 fewer smart contracts on Providence versus, you know, 30 more on Ethereum, I think I think I know which one you, you should pick. Sure, yeah. Also, we are private, uh, sorry, we're public, but properly permissioned. Uh, the other blockchains you mentioned are public and permissionless. Yeah. And that's great for a lot of use cases, particularly around crypto, but it's not good for regulated financial services, which will never be fully decentralized because, hey, at the end of the day, we need to know who you are, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> at least security, <laughs> we need to know who you are. Sorry. That's securities law. There's yeah. nothing we can do about it. We'll never be in the crypto utopian state of, you know, I can trade anything anytime, anywhere. Yeah. Then I can use it to go, you know, finance terrorism or launder <laughs> money or whatever. That's not that's not what we do. And yeah. So we are properly permissioned for financial services. Sure. Meaning uh, all smart contracts that write code to the blockchain uh, need to be approved by governance. Uh, so we only allow things that we think are appropriate for financial services onto provenance. And again, you know, every bit of code can be an attack vector for something. So yeah. permissionless. Uh, and financial services, I really don't think mix in the long term. The reason there have been so many assets on on Ethereum and, and the layer twos is because it was the you know post Bitcoin, it was the OG blockchain, and you know if you wanted to be an early adopter, you really didn't have a lot of other choices. So if if Bitcoin was 1.0 and Ethereum was 2.0, we're probably four or 5.0 because we've improved on so many different functions here at Providence. Sure. Okay. So that intuitively. Makes sense. Um, so how does that, going back to the HELOC example, um, if, say, you're a traditional mortgage lender and you're thinking about getting onto Providence, like what, I guess, is sort of the sales pitch? Like what are the main value adds that um, a lender would see in making this transition? So important to separate Providence from builders on Providence. So Providence and, and all layer ones in my, you know, 
admittedly uh, tech light uh, brain, is the operating system uh, on which you have to put programs. So I think of it when I you know go to the Apple Store and I buy a new Mac and I come home and I open it up and I have an operating system and then I need to load on you know Adobe Acrobat and Microsoft Word. Um, you know we're the operating system. Uh, yeah. We do things on chain. We provide the protocol and the governance. And then others come and they build things on chain, right? So the the premier builder and the inventor of the Providence blockchain was Figure Technologies, Mike Cagney and Juno and their team. And they uh, started Providence and Figure at the same time. At that time, it was Providence 1.0, which was built in in uh, in, Hyperle- in Hyperledger, and it was private and permissioned. And they started to spin up a couple of businesses. One is a lending business, and one is an exchange business. Um, they both have since scaled. Um, their use of Providence has also scaled. And what Providence has happened, it's moved to its current version, which is the 2.0 version on the, in the Cosmos ecosystem. And the foundation was formed, the Providence Blockchain Foundation was formed uh, about two years ago now um, as a decentralized, uh, not-for-profit, non-stock corporation. So while figures a large holder of hash, they don't control the foundation in any way, shape, or form. They're not on the board. Um, the board is independent. And um, again, the Providence does the, the, the governance and the you know, the technology. So Figure continues to be the largest user of the Providence technology. And they've built um, yeah, a myriad of uh, software, both Web2 and on-chain, that services mortgages and home equity line of credit uh, lenders. Um, and they do things like, you know, five-minute uh, application and a five or approval and a five-day funding. All that is powered by blockchain. Pretty fast. Uh, which is better than you're going to get with yeah. you know, banks. And because of that, they've got 10 of the 20 largest mortgage originators using their technology. Now, when you're a borrower and you go to, you know, HomePoint or Movement or any of the larger um, companies you or, or figure.com, and you apply for your mortgage, you see a traditional Web2 experience, you probably have no idea that under the hood is blockchain. And that's the way it should be. Um, you need a good UI UX on the front end and on the back end. And in the middle, you know, most consumers really care less about what the tech if it's an Oracle database or yeah. mainframe, who cares, right? I, yeah. I personally don't care. Um, but if I can, and Figure has proven this, they've, they've taken out 150 to 200 basis points out of the cost of the transaction, because this goes back to intermediaries that we were speaking about. In a securitization of a bond or a securitization of an asset, um, there's something like 14 different parties involved. And each of them take a small fee for you know, moving a process along. And uh, most of them exist to make the process safe because no one trusts each other. So yeah. if you can replace trust with truth. Uh, you 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 can disintermediate a lot of the intermediator intermediaries, um, and then put on top of that bilateral instant settlement, and you've got a game changer. So back to me trading with you know uh, the guy in France for his France Telecom shares. You know we don't need those intermediaries right now. The intermediaries exist to keep us safe because I don't trust him; he doesn't trust me. Uh, but if I don't need to trust him, everything starts to change. So if you can take 150 basis points out of a lock, you know, theoretically, you can reduce the rate that the homeowner has to pay, and you can put some money back in his pocket, and he can be in the homeowner. Yeah. I, as a borrower, would rather have the money than giving it to a bunch of servicers, right? That's yeah. Right. So is <laughs> is the innovation in HELOC then around, I guess, the 
essential processing of the transaction, not necessarily the underwriting. Yeah, correct. I mean, the underwriting yeah. is a uh, is going to be a you know it's going to be technology enabled, but it's not going to be a blockchain. Blockchain doesn't help that. Sure. Yeah. Where where it helps is you can ledger the loan, and then you can have lots of people look at a, a truthful copy of the data, and that's where blockchain really comes into the difference. Whether your decision to lend or not, you know, it can, can be made more efficient, but the decision's still the decision, and that can't be enhanced by you know, the, the, again the information can, but the decision is still going to be the decision. Gotcha. Uh, but where it helps is you can ledger uh, everything on chain. You can put offline documents in an encrypted object store, which writes a hash to the chain. And then the the real efficiencies come when you package a thousand loans together and you go to create an uh, asset backed security and sell that asset backed security. The the process of things like audit are significantly reduced because you know for a fact nothing in the loan document has changed. You don't have to go back and you know read the loan agreement because you know it hasn't changed since the last audit. Interesting. Okay. Get efficiency with. So, how to pull on that thread a little bit further? How does say you are creating this aspect security, and you maybe it's going to Fannie or Freddie, right? Um, what are the implications, I guess, of you know these efficiencies in the the uh, servicing of the loans to, I guess, that particular market? Um, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah. So, um, I'll walk you a little bit through the process. So, um, yeah. Today, you know, a thousand over the next you know, month, a thousand people go to figure or or you know movement mortgage or guarantee rate, and they apply for a home equity line of credit. Each of those decisions is made by the the, the um, asset lender, of course, uh, but each loan gets ledgered to the blockchain. Uh, so, over the next month, a thousand of them aggregate; they're all in the right um, credit box, which means they're they fit the criteria of the asset backed security. So those thousand will then get aggregated and um, warehoused, right? There'll be a, a warehouse line in the middle that takes them off the balance sheet of the lender. That warehouse will obviously charge a fee. Um, the quicker you can get that process from the lender to the warehouse, the cheaper it will be because nobody likes to take that credit risk. Yeah. Um, and the faster you can take that bundle of warehouse loans and put it into an ABS, tranche it out and sell it, also, the the amount of time that it takes to do that is you know, the, the shorter it is, the cheaper the cost of capital. Again, because nobody likes that risk. Um, and then when you can put it into an ABS, you can chop it up and you can give investors visibility up to it. And now, for the first time we saw this year, you can get it rated by DBRS Morningstar. So the okay. first ever blockchain native ABSs rated by a Real rating agency were done this year, and there've already been four or five of them. Saluda Grade has done uh, one or two, and Figures done three or four. So a billion dollars of rated ABS, um, all digitally native home equity lines of credit uh, have been done. And the industry, you know, the, you know, the crypto industry doesn't appreciate that. I'm trying to be careful with my words because <laughs> it's sold to you know a handful of institutional investors. Yeah. You look at the ABS market, and you'll know this. You know, every week there's you know, four or five or ten, three hundred million dollar ABS offerings. Whether it's you know cell phone receivables or car receivables or or HELOC receivables, um, a three hundred million dollar deal in the ABS world is is an everyday occurrence. That being said, a three if this it didn't go to a handful of institutions and it went to you know three hundred million dollars was sold to you know, three thousand crypto wallets. Yeah. The crypto industry would go wild. 
Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so you're kind of going at like the implication, I guess, for the retail user um, is that you now potentially have access to this asset class in a way that you didn't ever have before. Yeah, the issue is it's not it's not a retail product yet because yeah. If, Every every asset originator will tell you if you can sell institutionally, you you're not going to sell retail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 If I can sell to to ten, you know, large funds, I'm not going to sell to three thousand retail. Yeah, and I would also bet that retail's not super interested in you know an ABS of mortgages in Sacramento. Mo- they, at least they, most they, people. They, they, they should be because it's a ten percent yield, and it's great credit because. The credit box that are used to write these things are they're high credit people with an LTV in their house that's also very high. So the default risk is de minimis. Yeah. And the interest rate is, you know, substantially more than than treasuries. Okay. And they're triple um, rated. Like they're rated. So you know, yeah, yeah. treasury equals any kind of rated security, but you get you get hundreds of basis points higher than treasuries. Do uh what what is like I guess the insight relative to the traditional way of doing this um by doing it through provenance? So you've got this asset backed security, you've got a thousand borrowers. Is there a native advantage to like understanding the credit worthiness of those borrowers relative to the traditional way to do it? Or yeah, I mean, not not again, that's not the area where blockchain really comes in handy it is really in the servicing aspect of the loan i mean yeah. blockchain it, it, you know if you can put a great ui ux on top of the chain you can get better insight to what's underneath sure now that you know that's still evolving but you know and, and i've heard so because of the blockchain use you can see yeah you know, if you have mortgages which which mortgage which um, borrowers are current which areas of the country are in trouble if yeah. you could digitize the entire process you could have averted the great financial crisis of of the way because you would have seen it coming, and you know the big short in the Michael Lewis movie. Uh, you know maybe that doesn't happen because you know it's a much more efficient market than the. That's kind of where I was going. Like if you had this like incredible insight, and you could see like okay, some set some area of the country is starting to suffer, um, and all of a sudden you see five percent of people are delinquent, ten percent are delinquent. Yeah. Like that's obviously a big sign, and that was. You know, one of the big problems with uh, 2009, for sure. And and yeah. a lot of that information was 45 and 60 days in arrears. So yeah, yeah. Someone, someone was yeah has missed you know two months of payment. I know that two months later. So now they've missed four months of payment. Yeah, things are a lot worse today than they were two months ago. Whereas yeah, theoretically on chain you have real time visibility. You know, it's the first of the month. Okay, the payment came in on the first. Yeah. So yeah, it, it has the potential to make markets a lot more efficient and so, be disruptive in the process. Because again, the, the people it disrupts are those who today earn fees for keeping people safe. But again, if you replace trust with truth, you don't need to keep people safe. Yeah. 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 So what, uh, outside of the HELOC side of things, what is interesting about provenance for the rest of financial services? Are there specific areas that you're seeing a lot of traction or areas of interest that you're pursuing? Yeah, so, um, yeah it's it's really starting to explode. Um, one big project we're working on, it should get announced literally any day. It's being presented at the Singapore FinTech Festival in um, three weeks' time, two weeks' time. We're working with a, a, you know, a very, very large U.S. bank um, and their internal private blockchain and a couple of very, very large asset managers and the project in, in, involves them 
rebalancing a portfolio of investments across a couple of different blockchains, including their own, uh, on the theory that you know when and you'll know this being a wealth manager, uh, yeah, let's say your Apollo fund is up twenty percent this year, but your you know your gold commodity fund is down five percent. You know the Apollo fund is got a seven year lock; it's completely illiquid. Um, you can't rebalance anytime soon, so now your client is way overweighted and yeah, right. So the project that this very, very large bank is undertaking is the ability to rebalance a portfolio of investments across multiple blockchains, um, all settling back down into their uh, clients' portfolio. And it's sort of the holy grail of wealth management because now you can inject alts into the traditional 60-40 portfolio. Yeah. And you, can more, you can invest more like endowments and, you know, Yale uh, invests, the Yale endowment invests is the typical. Um, you know, alt portfolio where they have commodities and they have they have you know PE funds and they've got you know receivables and startups and you know all the asset classes that you need to have an efficient mix, not necessarily the sixty forty mix that everybody's stuck with. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's the opportunity, and um, you know when this this news comes out in, in you know, a week or so, it'll be very very exciting. So we're working with really big banks. We continue to work with the USDF consortium around bank-minted tokenized deposits. Banks absolutely have to be uh, play a role in the financial services world, and they are, you know, they're. I'm not saying it's happening anytime soon, but there is, you know, potential that banks start to get disintermediated because if you theoretically had a, you know, a yielding stablecoin, a treasury stablecoin that was more efficient, more bankruptcy remote than the existing models, like if you had a much better stablecoin, which we can talk about next time we do this. Um, That's a big topic right now, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So I'll give you, I mean, it's it's not unpublic, so it's public. Uh, figure came out with a couple of days ago, an S1 for a product, um, an S1, uh, meaning it's a US um, registered security um, called Figure Capital Corp. And it's exactly that. It's essentially a stable coin that yields money market, so for plus minus 50%, so 5% it yields. Um, we can trade it peer to peer. We can use it for settlement. We can use it, you know, theoretically yeah. like coffee. If you have a, a corporate treasury, you can you don't have to come out of T bills and into you know, savings accounts. You can just keep it in cash. Um, it's a game changer, and yeah, it, it's potentially disruptive to a lot of businesses, um, but certainly to bank checking accounts that are yielding you know fifty bips. Yeah, if that. Yeah, yeah. if that. Um, yeah. You know, it's disruptive. So banks, you know, I think the the regulators are starting to understand that banks, you know are vital to our economy and they need to play a role and they need to be more efficient. And the way that they are right now is not super efficient. So, you know, projects like the USDF consortium and bank minted tokenized deposits absolutely need to play a role in the future and they can't get left behind, you know, unlike, you know, the security service or so if BNY Mellon gets left behind with its, you know, corporate trustee business, uh, you know, bad things won't happen in the financial services, but if banks get left behind with their lending businesses and they can't lend anymore and they can't hold deposits as much, uh, yeah, bad things start to happen. So banks well, need to play a role here. Yeah. So I'm curious about that piece. So what is it that makes you say that, you know, banks, and I'm, you know, siphoning out the wirehouses here, not them. Yeah. Like what what is what is it about banks that is so useful to a well-functioning economy? And why why couldn't that, I guess, traditional bank business just go on chain like, yeah. what, what is it about i guess your local bank that's so important yep yeah. so 
All right, two 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 questions there. So you know, local banks are important because they you know they take in a dollar of deposits and they lend out you know nine hundred dollars of loans, or sorry, hundred dollars of deposits, nine hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine, nine, nine times. Yeah. Uh, the, the deposits, and they trust the deposits to be sticky, <laughs> because sure. you borrow, you borrow short and you lend long. Yeah. And you make the spread on the interest, obviously. Um, and that credit keeps the economy functioning. And as you saw in the financial crisis, when banks stopped lending, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so banks need to continue lending, which means they have to have an attractive source of deposits. So that's fine. But if you have a product now that yields you know, money market and is liquid and is easier to use than a bank account and you know has a Visa card attached to the back of it, so if I want to go to Starbucks and buy something, I can. Um, Maybe there's fewer deposits. There's fewer deposits. There's fewer lending, less, mm-hmm. lending uh, less credit, and the economy slows, and, and it's cyclical, and bad things happen. <laughs> so banks, yeah, are leaning into it, but you know the regulators are cautious as they should be. Um, but technology moves faster than regulators, and again, yeah, if technology is done right. Um, you know, it, it pre- presents a you know not a impossible problem, but a problem nevertheless that needs to be um, you know addressed and the regulated liability networks rln projects are are you know understanding this the usdf project understands this Um, but i fear that uh, regulators aren't moving as quickly as they could i mean again safety number one i will always say safety number one but banks theoretically could be disintermediated by other products yeah what i guess to ask further about the regulatory environment do you guys kind of take a view on where we are currently and i guess maybe more importantly what would be helpful to the industry in the future i mean it's a good question having yeah again it's we do as much as we can to educate regulators um we need to do more. Everyone needs to do yeah. more. The industry needs yeah. to do more. The, the industry has a bad reputation on purpose. The industry, you know, again, I'm not a you know crypto native guy, so I'm the last guy to talk intelligently about the crypto industry. But you know, obvious from the headlines, it's <laughs> crypto has been its own worst enemy. <laughs> sure. And, and, yeah, it should have been a for it could it can be a force for good. But the first thing you know a, a politician sees is you know. Um, Power uh, financing and, and yeah, tax and, evasion and yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of bad things going on in crypto. Um, that being said, that's the stuff that gets the headlines. I, I was speaking to a you know a, a journalist from a very uh, well-respected publication. He was, he was trying to find a, a story in what we're doing, and I'm like, you know, we're at the end of the day, we're a back office security. So we're the plumbers. Uh, Bank of New York used to say we're the plumbers of Wall Street. Yeah, that's it's it's not dissimilar to what we're doing at Providence right now. We are we're connecting pipes. We're connecting a front-end UI UX with a back-end UI UX, uh, sometimes in security. Um, and we're making it more efficient, but there's no stories there. There's no you know wonderful you know, characters who are you know committing fraud and you know buying penthouses and in, in, in yeah. Bermuda. Having sex with each other and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, that's not what we do. I'm sitting here in a hoodie in a, in a, in a New Jersey suburban uh, room. Yeah. Sexy. <laughs> you know, maybe you just need to bring that up to the board next time and get some drinks and just, you know, create a story for you guys. I, I guess. There's, there's no there's no, story, there's no there there. There's no story. Yeah. There. Doing real work. <laughs> um, yeah, that's funny. 
<laughs> I, it's, it's, I feel like we're in a really interesting moment right now with crypto because you kind of have the bad stuff almost out of the rear view mirror of the last couple of years. Like it's kind of <laughs> hanging there, you know, and Michael Lewis and SBF are sort of headlining right now because that's coming to an end. Um, and then you've got all these rumors around like the spot ETF and, yeah. you know, people are like all the people I talk to are just quietly just, you know, building away just brick by brick by brick and just putting all these infrastructure pieces together. But, you know, a lot I, like I feel like also in that too, you see a lot more real world use cases. So like, you know, cheaper HELOCs, for example, and I just had on um, the chief strategy officer of uh, AirTM. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're, um, they, they do a lot of remittances. So like if you're in Argentina, basically you can convert your fiat to USDC to preserve your purchasing power and then also, you know, conduct business through that. So that's like a really big use case, at least internationally. But a lot of it kind of hinges, I feel like, on the regulatory environment, at least here in the U.S. too. So, like, I kind of feel like there's a lot of ambiguity <laughs> right now, to a degree. Yeah, for, for certain things. I mean, so if you want to put a fund on chain, you know, Reg D, Reg A plus, uh, you know, all very well understood, very well vetted. You can put a, you know, Apollo can put a chain on a, a fund on chain anytime they want. It's, that that part's quite easy. Yeah. Um, Regulations around what is an exchange is, you know, obviously needs to be clarified because it's a, you know, which which lays down to what do I run, right? The Providence yeah. Foundation, <clears throat> we are certainly not a security at the foundation. Uh, hash has never been sold publicly in its current form. So that's pretty safe to say not a security. Uh, that's not to say the other projects that you mentioned, you know, aren't. They, they've all sold what I think are securities. Look like securities. Yeah, yeah. The SEC has said they're securities. Uh, we'll find out in court. Um, yeah, the ICO craze was unfortunate. Um, and we'll see how it all falls out. But even if the SEC did come and, and deem, for instance, the Providence Foundation a security, and I would be fine with that if we had the proper rules because we would do K's and Q's and we would be a registrant. The issue around the token is not contemplated by securities laws obviously the, the majority of them were written in 1933 and 1934 um i can't pay validators or not i the, the protocol can't pay validators in securities is one issue yeah. which is a pretty major issue yeah. so they can't take the native utility token of any blockchain uh, yeah. because they're not broker dealers so do you turn all the validators which could be in you know and ours are in dozens of countries around the world and it's usually you know Two guys and a dog running a, a computer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They spend a couple, you know, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars on some computers and are just, you no, know, no, running. go 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 get a broker dealer license in the U.S. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not, not not realistic, right? Yeah. So you know, we, some of that can be can be fixed um, with process, uh, but we're just not there yet, um, and it can all be solved, and clarity would be welcome. And we will do anything we can to be fully compliant with any regulatory body that asks us to be fully compliant. We just need some clarity. And as I said, technology is moves faster than the regulatory environment, and it always will. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe to pivot off that in very general, what 
outside of even what you guys do is interesting to you right now? Um, whether it's DeFi or TradFi, like what what kind of is interesting? Yeah, so um, I, I'm compelled by the FTX bankruptcy. Uh, I think it's fascinating because, I, again, I didn't start in crypto. I've never bought Bitcoin or, or any other token for that matter. <laughs> I'm just not. I'm very traditional. I yeah. buy stocks and bonds and some PE and some private companies, but I'm yeah, yeah. Guy. I, I think that the deck is stacked against retail investors. Um, I think uh, you know some of the, the big institutional traders are some of the smartest guys I've ever known. Yeah, you know, the, the Jane Streets, the Jumps. These guys are are brilliant, and it's a, it's it's not a, a market with symmetry. So I think they're going to take advantage of me. I don't know about anyone else, but they're they're definitely going to take advantage of me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, watch that space. Um, so I'm fascinated by that. I'm, you know, Figure is um, currently one of the bidders of the assets of the FTX assets, and they want oh, to spin okay, up. interesting. Yeah, so they want to spin up, and Mike Cagney has spoken about this a few times. His his vision, uh, and he did this on our quarterly call, which is available on our blog at Providence.io. Um, he wants to, his vision is to spin up a marketplace that has his ATS, his alternative trading system, where he can trade securities, tied into FTX 2.0, which will be a decentralized exchange. Yeah, all bound together by this stablecoin yielding new dollar that I spoke spoke about. Interesting. With being you can invest, you know, I'm, I replace my Schwab brokerage account. I put all my money into this thing. Yeah. I can trade securities on the ATS, peer to peer, instant settlement. Yeah. I can crypto on the, the DEX and, and other non securities on the DEX. And yeah. any cash that I have automatically earns 5% yield in, in the cash product. Yeah. 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 So it's a, you never That's, have to come back out to fiat rails. Yeah. Do um kind of a tangent here. So, Everyone's kind of talking about uh, tokenized treasuries and stable coins and that sort of thing right now. Yeah. And I think in theory for a lot of the global population being tied to the dollar probably makes sense relative to, you know, your existing local fiat. But the just sort of the global debt cycle, like the idea of putting tokenized treasuries everywhere in the world. Like, sure, it's great for the cost of borrowing for the U.S. government, but, like, I would imagine that the cost, that just debt would explode, right? And then I guess my question is, is it seems like you ultimately end up in the same place, right? Like, if you enable the U.S. government just to export dollars everywhere, they're going to take out a shit ton of debt. That will be inflationary, you know? And then ultimately... 20, 30, 50 years down the road, we're kind of in the same spot. So that's a thought as the stablecoin conversation keeps happening. I keep thinking about that. I don't know if you have a thought on that. So it's not even, you know, stable coins are never going to, in their current construct, won't scale globally or institutionally because, you know, USDC and USDT, you know, they're not bankruptcy remote. You're taking on the liabilities of the private company circle, private company tether. Yeah, who knows what the hell is behind Tether. Um, so they're never going to scale institutionally. There's just too much risk. A and B, they don't yield. So yeah, I mean, why? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that that might so, change too. You know, particularly if you guys introduce um, yeah. a yielding, you know, tokenized treasury. Like, so with this new yielding stablecoin, tokenized treasury, whatever you want to call it, um, I, I think it does have a disruptive potential to 
further dollarize the rest of the world. You know, the world is already, you know, and again, my, you'll, you won't find a more global person than me. I've been everywhere, literally, as part of my ADR job. So the world is about dollars. The world is about English. And if I can get everyone on New York time as well, um, home run, like that's the trifecta for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just the, the Anthony Morrow focused center uh, center sure. of the world. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> but you know, seriously, um, you know, the world is English. The world is if you're if you're a millionaire in Egypt, you're not a millionaire in Egyptian pounds. You're a millionaire in dollars. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. kids talk about being, I want to be a millionaire. You, know, you, want, you want to have a million pounds? No, I want a million dollars. Yeah. Uh, right. So, it, it, the, and and a proper stable coin like this would would, would yeah. As I said, in, I'm in Uganda. I don't I have no idea what currency Uganda uses, but now I have a a wallet that holds this yielding five percent U.S. dollar that I can have a Visa card attached to, so I can go buy something if I want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't need a bank account, and this goes back to bank disruption. I don't need yeah. a bank, right? I I know it's safe. It's 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 a it's a forty act. So this figure thing is a forty act security uh, yeah. registered SEC registered nineteen forty act. Um, you know, all the assets are backed one to one, so it's not ambiguous like usdc or usdt um it, it, it has the potential to be very disruptive to the global financial system and i know that's a bold statement yeah you heard it here <laughs> true i think it's true yeah we'll yeah um let's see what are we at we're about like 10 minutes left um Maybe like any five. questions for me? Any thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> like what? Yeah, are you... so, uh, I'm excited about the future. It's uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of cool things going on. Uh, as I said, this is you know, the last industry, the last job I'm ever going to have. Uh, it's got so much. You know, for, over over the next ten years, there's so many cool things we could do. I would love to see ADRs uh, tokenized and traded yeah. <laughs> one of these days. Maybe by the end of my career, yeah. it's, it's it's a matter of you know, at the big banks, you're going to get. Um, two camps one that is embracing tokenization and thinks it's the coolest thing in the world but you're going to get another camp that doesn't want to be disrupted yeah uh, they like their role they like their job they like their bonus they like their revenue sure uh, yeah, yeah. They don't want that to go away so uh banks some banks are slow some banks are faster you know jp morgan for instance is, is all in on this which is wonderful to see yeah they've got their private blockchain um that'd be great to talk to somebody jp morgan about that i'd be curious to know what they're up to with it um do you generally think that all these over time, at least all these Wall Street firms are going to go to sort of crypto native infrastructure over time? I think I think there's no chance. I think they they turn into dinosaurs if they're not. It's yeah. cheaper, faster, and safer. I keep coming back to if you if, if any process in financial services is cheaper, faster, and safer, it's always going to win. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's my that's my holy trinity, cheaper, faster, and safer. And right now, every solution they've seen is, you know, like Ethereum is cheaper and faster. It's not safer. It's different risks. Yeah. Than TradFi. Um, mm. Arguably riskier. Um, provenance is cheaper, faster, and safer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do as far as use cases go for the industry, do you think it? Do you think crypto really is mostly a financial services type use case, or where? Like, do you see? potentially other industry verticals that make sense for provenance, maybe like healthcare or something like that, or. Not really, you know, um, we're, we're focused on financial services. So it's, it's the use case I know. Um, we have some use cases um, in supply chain, which. Okay. 
just tricky. We we try to stay digitally native. We, we like our assets to be digitally native. Sure. The IBM commercial with strawberries, um, you know, going down the road, and you know, and then finally winding up in Whole Foods. Yeah, it's great to tokenize strawberries, but anyone can swap out those strawberries with new strawberries. Anytime. Yeah, unless you've got like some edible QR code on every strawberry. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's I don't see those being problem solvers. I mean, you can if it's an information flow thing, great. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, it, we'll we'll see how that all falls out. But um, I can't really speak to gaming. I can't really speak to to metaverse. I, you know, I, I don't know what those use cases are. We think uh, financial services is more than a big enough vertical. I think you've seen some of those stats. You know, $16 trillion over the next few years will be uh, tokenized. It's a $500 trillion TAM if you if you talk about all financial assets in the world. Yeah. So you know, there's, there's plenty, to, plenty to do in this vertical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's there's a lot to pick out there for sure. Um, well, let's see. Um, yeah. Any last quick thoughts for everyone? Uh, yeah. Providence.io if you want to check yeah. out what we're doing. <laughs> If you need help building Providence Labs, uh, also can be found on Providence.io. Um, yeah, very happy to have spent some time with you, Ben. This is great. Yeah, no, um, Anthony, this is great. Welcome back anytime. Um, I'll definitely, you know, start <laughs> following you guys uh, yeah, more closely and see what you guys are up to. Um, but yeah, uh, maybe we'll just leave it there. Sounds good. Thanks for your time. Yep. Till next time. Bye.